This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Gregory, how you doing? Second week of Easter, or I guess, yeah, second week of Easter, right? That's where we are. I always get yeah. that confused, the numbering confused because it's, yeah, we're the second week of Easter. I shouldn't get numberings <laughs> confused. Doesn't matter. How are things? How are you? I'm doing well. Um, let's see. Things that I will have done by the time this episode comes out are numerous and exciting. Um, mm. I went up. I will have gone up. That's the use of the future perfect tense right there for those of you who are keeping track. Um, to visit with the Nashville sisters in the Netherlands. Uh, so they have a convent in Sittard in the Netherlands. Uh, and so they have a variety of ministries that they're involved in, one of which is the chaplaincy of the University of Maastricht. So up there for a retreat for some of the folks who are to be baptized, received into the church, and then just for the, the broader community and then spending time with the sisters. And then, um, so in Switzerland, they have a World Youth Day every year. Uh, but the thing about their World Youth Day is it's not a World Youth Day. It's just a Switzerland Youth Day, but they call it World Youth Day, which is confusing. So World Youth Day Switzerland taking place in St. Gallen at the end of the month. So I am looking forward to going at the time of recording. And I enjoyed going at the time that this episode comes out. Um, so there you go. There's a little time travel for me. And how are you doing? Hmm. Great. Yeah, I did not go to a World Youth Day. Um, what did I? What have I done? Have you ever been to a World I mean, Youth Day? No, it's not for me. Yeah. No, I, I have some distinct no. memories of things that you wouldn't like. There's this one like moment in Panama where I was sleeping on the ground and my air mattress broke, and then like spiders started carting out of the dirt, and they were like, hey, what's going on in our field? And I was like, this is awesome. So you would have loved it. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm high maintenance, but I'm certainly not low maintenance. So maybe just maintenance. And yeah, gosh, I'm not, I don't like huge, like, I'm not, is a gore, no. Wait, what's fear of crowds? Agoraphobia? Uh, agoraphobia, yeah, nailed it. Oh, yeah. What's fear of spiders? Arachnophobia. Uh, arachnophobia. Wow, they're yeah. very close. I'm not agoraphobic by any means, but like the idea of going to like a rally with the Pope with like 40,000 of your closest friends like makes you want to vomit. I have no <laughs> desire to ever do that. So that's like the whole premise of World Youth Day. Also, it turns out I'm not really a youth anymore. I'm like ah. almost, I'm a mid 30 something. So the, if they had like young adult youth day with happy hours and stuff like that, mm. I'd do that. But I'm not a youth. <laughs> so like, you know, like glamping is to camping is to young adult World Youth Day world day as youth world day whatever the heck it's called. you're you're more of a cruise ship chaplain would you say <laughs> never oh my gosh <laughs> all right there no you go. offense to people standards. who love cruises but <laughs> no i've never been on one i will never go on one not a chance um, but is. bless bless the cruises um <laughs> great all right well we are Yes, in the second week of Easter, which means we are in our second installment of our Eucharist series. If you didn't listen to uh, last week's Eucharist series, Eucharist episode, uh, we, we're doing, uh, I guess, through the weeks of Easter, instead of a sort of Sunday Lexio, we're doing um, a series on the Eucharist. Well, why? Well, because the U.S. bishops are promoting um, 
like catechesis and devotion to the Eucharist over the next couple of years and anticipation of a Eucharistic Congress to happen, I think like two, three years from now. Um, so we thought in sort of getting ready for that, turning our attention to, to the Eucharist, to the body of Christ during the Easter season would be uh, a helpful thing. So last week, uh, last week's bonus episode talked about the renewal, renewal and sort of like the theme of the Eucharistic revival. But this week, we're going to talk about doctrine and sort of lay out some, some doctrinal teachings, doctrinal points about the Eucharist. So uh, let's do that today. Uh, so as far as the Eucharist, perhaps one of the places to start, there are a lot of places to start, uh, but we can talk about what the Eucharist maybe is and isn't. Um, we, I forgot who, who, I think it was with Father Joseph Anthony, we were on an episode for the Back to Belief series during Lent, and we were talking about uh, the sacraments, and uh, we mentioned that the sacramentality exists, or sacraments exist in Protestant denominations, other Christian denominations in some ways, but certainly the sacraments are a, a, a Catholic thing that, you know, the sacramental life is a Catholic thing. I think we could say that similarly about the Eucharist, um, people, Protestants have a sort of idea of the Eucharist to varying degrees, um, mostly as symbol, but not so for, for Catholics. So Father Gregory, maybe, maybe that's a good place to start. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. but we'll start there. No, I think um, when one of the great things about being Catholic is you can just say, yes, I choose all. Not in the sense that like you choose virtue and vice or you choose, you know, merits and sin, but in the sense that you get to choose all the good things and to retain all the good things. You sometimes hear people say Catholic both and. So we don't want to adopt a caricatured position of our belief, which can be a temptation at times. So like, for instance, We'll hear it said that Protestants believe that we're justified by faith. So we as Catholics believe that we're justified by works, but it's actually not true. We believe also that we are justified by faith, but we make a, a kind of point of stating that it's a faith breathing forth love or it's a faith animated by charity. So you should see it in the works that it produces, but it's, I mean, it's a justifying faith. So when it comes to the Eucharist, I think that there's a lot of real beautiful things to be discovered in mining the symbolism or mining the signs. And this is something that you see with like Brent Petrie and Scott Hahn doing lately. lately. Um, and so it's, it's just a really rich source of gaining access to the significance, the meaning, the richness, the wonder of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, because oftentimes in these conversations, you'll hear it said, you know, like Protestants think that the Eucharist is just a symbol and it depends on which type of Protestant you're, you're discussing here. But, and so we kind of push back against that and we go like real strong, real presence, which is a great thing, right? We're not in any way, shape or form saying that we should diminish our faith in or our profession of belief in the real presence. But it's really good, I think, to, to access that belief in the real presence through some of the signification, through some of the signs, through some of the ritual and liturgy. And we have a whole nother episode dedicated to liturgy and a whole nother episode dedicated to the Eucharistic change. So we'll leave some of that aside for, for future episodes. But um, yeah. There's just a whole lot of signification that's happening here in the Eucharist, and it's a great source uh, for the nourishing of our faith. Yeah, and one of those, I think one of the places um, that we see uh, some of the signification uh, comes, especially coming out, of, coming out of Lent, where we have a lot of the readings from, uh, from the prophets, particularly Isaiah and the suffering servant, and you have um, the sort of prophetic imagery of the slaughtered lamb and the sacrifice, and then you have the sacrifice um, on the cross. 
also the the sort of sacrifices in the temple um, from the Judaic or Israelite tradition of sacrifice that come over into, um, I guess, a lot more into the sort of uh, ritual uh, surrounding mass, the extra sort of parts, not extra, but the, the sort of non-essential parts, as it were, um, to to the to the Eucharist, all the parts leading up the the penitential rite, the readings, um, and then afterwards the prayers after the after the consecration of the Eucharist, after we receive the Eucharist, these sort of um, the signification kind of fills out or um, yeah completes the, the the prophecy of the Old Testament sacrifice of the sacrificial lamb, but obviously represented um, on the altar following the crucifixion and the resurrection. But we can also talk about the signification or the symbolism of the Eucharist with respect to sort of New Testament realities of of how the Eucharist symbolizes um, Christ's sacrifice, um, as we would say, in an unbloodied way, right? On the altar, there isn't um, the shedding of Christ's blood as there was the bloodied sacrifice on the cross, but the symbolism of of the Eucharist coming, um, you know, also symbolizes Christ's sacrifice, not just the Old Testament kind of um, temple sacrifices. So I don't know what are what are some of those the ways by which the Eucharist symbolizes the the sort of new covenant sacrifice. Yeah, maybe we could just do a, a quick sketch and then kind of drill down on each one and think about it, meditate on it. Um, when Saint Thomas describes the sacraments, right, he he uses this definition from Saint Augustine that a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing that makes men holy, and it specifically makes you holy because it causes holiness in signifying. So it's a sign that causes a grace. And so St. Thomas takes very seriously the sign value of the Eucharist, and you set up nicely this, this kind of old covenant, new covenant um, diptych. Um, what, the way in which St. Thomas describes it is he says that it signifies something of the past, the present, and the future. And in signifying something of both, or all the above, past, present, and future, it makes those realities um, what would you say, kind of efficacious in the sacrament. Um, so with respect to the past, it signifies the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, like the associations that you just described there. And he says one of the main ways in which it does this is by the double consecration. So the priest consecrates the bread and then the wine become the body and blood of Christ, which signifies or kind of makes present before us the separation of Christ's body and blood. So Christ sheds every drop of his blood for love of us. And in signifying it, it makes it present. It makes it kind of, what would you say? It brings it to bear on our present experience. And then it signifies something with respect to the present, namely grace and virtue. St. Thomas says, well, with the Eucharist, we, we receive his body and blood under the appearance of bread and wine. And bread and wine is just like common table food. It's you know, you want to just have a, a good meal, a simple meal, a quick meal. In first century, you know, Jewish culture, you'd go for bread and wine. And that's still the case in a lot of cultures in the 21st century. So it's it comes to us under the appearance of just ordinary nourishment. And so it's fitting that it would give us the grace and virtue, specifically the charity whereby we live as Christians, whereby we flourish as Christians. And then it signifies something with respect to the future, uh, namely the union or the unity of the mystical body. And here, St. Thomas draws from the scriptures and from St. Augustine. He says, how do you get bread? How do you get wine? Well, in the case of bread, you start with many grains. You, you know, crush them, mill them. You make them into dough. You bake it, and then you get one loaf. And then with respect to wine, you start with many grapes. You crush them, ferment them, and you get wine. 
So you start with many grains and get one loaf. You start with many grapes and get one chalice. So out of many, one. So too, the Eucharist makes us to be uh, the mystical body of Christ, head and members. By virtue of the charity which it kindles in our hearts, it draws us more closely in union, in communion, such that we become the church whom we are destined to be. So there you go. You have, you have something of the past, something of the present, something of the future, and those kind of pick out the, the principal signs of the Eucharist, but each of them has a kind of content that can be mined and meditated on uh, further. So yeah, that'd be a basic sketch. Yeah, that what you were just talking about, the, the, the sort of future sign, the unity in the mystical body. Um, I think it must have been when when I took our course on the Eucharist here at the House of Studies, when I first learned that the principal effect of the Eucharist is is a unity, is is that it unites, that it builds, um, you know, as you were just saying, the union of the mystical body, head and members. Um, not that I thought it was other, but I don't know if I, I think I just assumed that the Eucharistic grace was just like conformity to Christ and these and, and that sort of thing, which it is, but through unity. So um, thinking about the effects of the sacrament, I guess, um, when, when St. Thomas looks at all of the sacraments, he kind of sets up what, what we call like the tripartite formula. There's, uh, there are three sort of stages to understanding the sacraments. And I guess, because we're talking about the doctrine of the Eucharist, it might be useful to talk about, to talk about this with respect to the, the Eucharist. So, um, the first of these, the first of these three, uh, and we could do this for every sacrament, but we'll just do it for the Eucharist because it's an episode on the Eucharist. Um, but the first of these, we would talk about the sign or the, 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 what's being done, the matter and the form of the sacrament. So if we look at every sacrament, we could talk about the matter, the, the thing that is being used or acted upon, um, in the sacrament. Uh, I guess I was going to say, we could just talk about the Eucharist, but now I'm going to use a different example to illustrate the Eucharist. So if we're thinking baptism, right, the, the matter of baptism is water, but more specifically the pouring of water uh, over one's head. Um, and then you have the form. So matter is the physical thing being done and form is, is, are the words that affect, as Father Gregory was talking about before, affect um, what is symbolized. So with baptism, you have the, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So those two things together, the pouring of water and the form, those words affect what is symbolized. So too in the Eucharist. So what is the matter of the Eucharist? Well, unleavened bread, and grape wine i guess there's not really a, a nicer that sounds weird there's not really a nicer wine made of grapes graped wine um no additives so we start with that that's the matter and then the form are the words of consecration that the priest says this is my body etc this is my blood etc 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 uh there you go can't pronounce words but we're hanging in there um but what of this we talked about the final effect this unity but what of the intermediate effect what what would we say about that yeah so like you you mapped it out this tripartite structure you have the sign which which brings us in contact with a certain reality and in all the sacraments you have a kind of intermediate effect or an intermediate reality and we call it intermediate because while it is a kind of resting point or an, a, a point of arrival it does conduct us on further so we talked then about the sign, right? You said you've got the form, you've got the matter. And what St. Thomas is doing by describing those past, present, and future realities is kind of drilling down on the sign itself. So he's saying, all right, you've got bread and you've got wine. You say these words, which are used by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and 
when we look at like why these elements or when we look at why these words, that's where you get access to all of this signification. All right. So you've got bread and wine, you know, out of many grains, one loaf, out of many uh, grapes, one chalice. Uh, and then this is the kind of common fare of table fellowship. It's done in a twofold or it's done in a double consecration. So he's just, he's just mining all the signification there so we can kind of understand, as it were, the wisdom behind our Lord's choice. And so by following these signs or by kind of attending to these signs, they conduct us to the intermediate effect. And here, this is really where the Eucharist is different or distinct from all the other sacraments, the way in which it, it transcends all the other sacraments. Because you brought up the example of baptism. So the intermediate effect of baptism, the first kind of arrival point of baptism is character, because it gives us a participation in Christ's priesthood, a kind of power for worship, a kind of power for praise. And then it conducts us further on to, you know, the forgiveness of sin, original and personal, the remission of all temporal punishment, infusion of grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. All these cool graces that come at the end of the line. But in the case of baptism, it makes those realities under the appearance of sign, or it, or it makes those realities sacramentally, right? It confects those realities sacramentally. But in the case of the Eucharist, you have the same sacramental dynamism at work, but it also makes our Lord present, not just sacramentally, but substantially, right? So he is present there, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And that's the first effect of the sacrament of the Eucharist is our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine. And so then when we think about the unity or the union of the mystical body, that is what his, his precious body and his precious blood kind of conducts us onwards towards, onwards towards. I don't know that I've ever said those two words in that order which probably means that I shouldn't. Um, so, so that becomes for us then a focus in our Eucharistic worship and our Eucharistic devotion because it's a peculiar way in which God is present to us in our sacramental life. And it's in part for this reason why we say that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, why all the other sacraments have a way of kind of ending in the Eucharist. And it's why that, you know, like we spend so much time thinking about it and praying through it. And yeah, I mean, mining as it were, the great riches of the sacramental tradition. But yeah, uh, maybe maybe with that, turn it back to you. Your thoughts on uh, the real presence, especially, you know, specifically in this kind of wild time where it's being called into question by many non-Catholics and Catholics alike. Yeah, I think the the what you just said the that phrase "source and summit," which comes from a document from the Second Vatican Council, right? I think that's where it's, at least Lumen Gentium Eleven is at least with the Catechism cites, if I remember correctly. I don't think Lumen Gentium Eleven cites anything else. I think. That's where it originates from. Um, but talking about the Eucharist as source and summit, it's important, I think, just this a little side note, but to, to recognize that the sacramental life is is a means, uh, generally, you know, we could say it's a means to union with Christ. You know, we, we're baptized, we're forgiven our sins in baptism, we're made heirs of the kingdom in baptism so as to enter into divine, into divine life, that offer um, of divine life. We go to confession to have our sins forgiven, sure, of course, but so as to enter into divine life, to be friends with Christ. Um, but that all, as Father Gregory said, points to the Eucharist, where Christ himself is is present substantially. And you see then why this makes sense as source and summit. Our life as Christians begins in Christ, and it leads, it goes to Christ. It reaches its climax in that union with Christ. Um, so, yeah, I think what one of the i guess one of the things that's often cited 
I don't know the numbers, but you know, the, so from whatever Gallup poll or Pew Sitter poll, is that a real thing? Pew poll? What what is it? Pew you know Research, I think about. it's called. Pew, that's right. Yeah. yeah, Pew. I think yeah, Pew Research poll of of the number of Catholics who don't believe in the real presence. Um, I don't. Gosh, I guess you could blame that on a whole host of things: catechesis, faith formation, bad preaching, etc., irreverence uh, for the sacrament, just general indifference, perhaps. But it's it's eminently important that this is something we understand as Catholics that what the, what the sacrament of the Eucharist is, or perhaps better to say who the sacrament of the Eucharist is, because again, it's the source, it's the foundation of our life as Christians, and it's the summit of our life as Christians. And if we don't, if that's missing, it seems to be missing in a uh, you know it seems to be a big hole, a sort of capstone that's that's missing. I was trying to think what is. What is the stone that's put in the top of an arch that keystone. holds it all together? Pennsylvania ah. Keystone State, baby. Put your arms down. Oh, sorry. Father Greg got really excited about that. You're kind of missing like the keystone. Everything else kind of fumble, fumbles, crumbles and fumbles and falls apart. Um, yeah, so uh, that's what I have to say about Source and Summit. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was this the the reality of Christ's presence in fully both in the the in both forms in his body and his blood because that's something that I've been asked about you know especially during COVID and coming out of COVID when the faithful weren't receiving as regularly from the chalice um, weren't receiving his precious blood am I receiving Christ fully or or that sort of thing and it's called we talk about the principle of concomitance here but what is like I guess what to say about that yeah yeah so um we've kind of set up then that our lord is present in all of the sacraments sacramentally that's an uninteresting sentence because it contains the definition in the definition or it contains the word to be defined in the definition but alas who cares aristotle's dead no just kidding he's very much alive and with us um uh so they contain christ or they contain the power of christ sacramentally they make christ present sacramentally but it's true of the eucharist that it makes him present substantially. And we have the episode dedicated to the change, and we'll talk about it in all kinds of wild and wonderful detail. Um, but here, that's simply to say that when our Lord institutes the other sacraments, he says, all right, let's pour some grace and virtue and gifts of the Holy Spirit, and let's do it through this ritual gesture. And the ritual gesture will signify some effect in the spiritual life, right? So baptism is our kind of go-to example. Baptism signifies a cleansing, and so it affects a cleansing. But the thing that's wild about the Eucharist is it doesn't just signify something passing or transient or a kind of motion. It, it signifies something you know, like concrete, stable, present before us on our altar. Because our Lord says, this is my body. Right? He says, this is my blood. And so what he makes present by signifying is himself, is his very substance. And so our Lord is present on the altar, St. Thomas will say, in the mode of substance. And we can talk about that. I think it's next episode with Father Bonaventure and me. Um, so now, here's the thing, though. It's not as if our Lord is a kind of, I was going to say a cosmonaut, because I'm thinking in um, Soviet Union terms for some strange reason. But our Lord is not an astronaut, because God bless America. All right. So he's not just flying around the universe or the galaxy, just visiting different altars here, there, and everywhere. I realize there are only altars on Earth, but it felt better to say astronaut. Um, so our Lord is not moving like one moves from place to place to place. 
He is made present by the signification. He is made present substantially. All right. But he remains in his glorified state in heaven. All right. So in heaven, he is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so then when we celebrate the sacrament of the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the mass, and the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. Our Lord is made present there, body and blood. But because in his glorified state, his body, blood, soul, and divinity are all present together. So whenever he is made present on the altar, whether body or blood, those elements bring with them, or excuse me, those, you know, now body and blood bring with them all the other aspects, which are together in our Lord's glorified state. So when we say, when the priest says, this is my body, the body is made there present and it brings with it the blood, the soul, and the divinity because they all are present together in our Lord's glorified state in heaven. And so too, when he says, this is my blood, the blood is there, you know, by mode of substance, but it brings with it the body, the soul, and the divinity for the same reason. So that's what I guess is, is basically meant by the doctrine of, of Eucharistic concomitants, which the first time I heard it in our Eucharist class, I was blown away. My very long white socks were going up and down from just elation at the recounting of this sweet doctrine. So yeah, it's good you brought it up. So we've been talking about doctrine. Uh, this episode is on doctrine. Um, <laughs> I guess it kind of begs the question, and perhaps perhaps in your in what you were explaining about concomitants kind of gave it away, and perhaps the form of the Eucharist, the words that affect the Eucharist kind of give away the answer too. But um, where it's easy to see, I guess, like where baptism comes from in ways because we see Christ baptized. Uh, we see Christ issue the the great command to go out and baptize all nations. We do have the Last Supper, I, um, and we could say, and we could see very much how the Last Supper is, at the Last Supper, we have the institution of the Eucharist, but where, like, where can we rely, or what do we rely on as, like, the source of this doctrine? Is, because I guess a criticism, or, you know, it could be just a sort of accretion over the years of, you know, of um, that that sort of I don't know, early church and then through the medieval ages, this has just sort of been added onto the church and it was never really meant to be this way and you don't have it in the scriptures or do you? I mean, where, what is the source, I guess, of, of this doctrine, of this belief in, in the Eucharist? Yeah, no, this is a great, a great place to end. And you kind of uh, introduced it with the opening salvo, just talking about Old Testament and New Testament, New Testament images. I think there's, you know, there's a kind of tendency among modern historiographers to say that you know, people in oldie times didn't really know what they were doing. And then people in subsequent generations just kind of made stuff up. And truth be told, there's, there's quite a bit of this that happens. And so we do have to be responsible in the way in which we recover the tradition. So we don't just end up saying kind of wild, fantastical things and attributing to those who, who went before us. But in the case of the Eucharist, we have a kind of bedrock certainty that our Lord instituted it. And yes, you pointed to um, the Last Supper. And on the Last Supper, you know, you, you can think about the liturgy of Holy Thursday, where we celebrate the institution of three great things, namely the priesthood, the Eucharist, and then the new commandment, the commandment to love as Christ himself loved, which is, you know, image there in peculiar fashion in John 13. And there's a sense, though, in which the Eucharist is still waiting its kind of full sense or full signification or full content, because it's not yet complete until such time as the sacrifice is performed. Because the Eucharist is a sacrifice, which is a thing that is lost in conversations, you know, 
16th century and beyond. Well, I guess it would have been under fire even previously, but it's especially in the 16th century and beyond that we have these ongoing debates and polemics about it. Because there's a kind of fear that if you multiply sacrifices, then you end up trivializing our Lord's one sufficient sacrifice as it's described in the letter to the Hebrews. But what we believe as Catholic is that in the celebration of the mass, it's the same sacrifice. Like you said, you know, first in bloody fashion uh, when our Lord died on Calvary and in the mass, it's perpetuated in unbloody fashion. And the reason for which we can hold that it is one, one sacrifice, like one in one in its meaning or one in its signification is that um, what we celebrate in the Mass is a commemoration of what transpired on Calvary, and the graces that are applied in the Mass are the graces that were merited for us on Calvary. So there's a union on account of the fact that it's the same event that's being commemorated, and it's the same graces that are being applied or released uh, or kind of transmitted in the life of faith. So we would look to the Last Supper, we would look to uh, our Lord's crucifixion, and then ultimately to the resurrection as the vindication of the fact that he who was crucified was in fact God himself, which invests all of the sacraments with their ultimate meaning and significance. There you have it. That's like the best ending line ever. What more <laughs> could you say? Good job, Father. <laughs> Great work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, obviously, this this episode, this 30 minutes doesn't cover the entirety of um, Eucharistic doctrine or th Eucharistic devotion or anything about the Eucharist. Um, but if you stay tuned uh, to future upcoming episodes, uh, we'll have more, as we've already said, on the Eucharist. So next week's episode, we'll focus specifically on the change in the Mass or what we call transubstantiation, how the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. And then we'll talk about the liturgy uh, after that, the week after devotion, uh, or like living with the Eucharist after that. And we've talked a little bit today about union, but that, that effect of union uh, on the last Sunday of Easter. If you're really hankering for more on the Eucharist, we, we have a retreat on the Eucharist um, in New York from July 29th to 31st. So uh, check that out, all five hosts, uh, that might not be something that gets you excited, or it might be something that gets you excited, but all five hosts <laughs> of God's Splitting will be there for the weekend. So um, check out our website for info about that. It'd be great to have you. Um, so from all of us, thanks for tuning into this episode. And thanks again to all of our supporters. If you'd like to help out with, with the work of God's Splitting, check us out at patreon.com slash Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like, subscribe, leave a review. All of these things help us very much. Visit godsplaining.org to check out our merchandise and to get dates for that Eucharist retreat, our other uh, retreat in July and our men's retreat in August. All of that info is up on our events tab on our website. And as always, know of our prayers for you. Pray for us. And until next time, God bless. God bless.